Hey, did it just come on? This battery's oh, well. Good morning. <laughs> How about that for a little gymnast? Yeah, let's do a little calisthenics. Let's get ourselves all going. Woke up, woke up this morning. Uh, we do want to welcome you as we gather this morning. Uh, apologize for our technical uh, difficulties and challenges. Uh, you know, uh, life is always interesting when you're recording live, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe we can cut off that first part from our live stream. I don't know. Uh, as we, uh, uh, for those of you who missed, we had a wonderful conversation on the Olivet Discourse this morning. Uh, we'll be starting the book of Revelation next week. So, uh, you know, if it's something of interest, something that you don't understand, uh, come a little earlier and join us for a small group. We'll, you know, uh, we'll walk through and we'll use the scripture to teach the scripture. Uh, as, as it was commented to me, why do other people not do that? Well, I don't know the answer to that, right? But, uh, but that's what we're, our, our goal would be. Uh, so this week we have uh, worship practice on Monday. Uh, the Faith to Life study on Tuesday is on Chapter 5. Uh, Wednesday group is still on uh, 1 Timothy 2. The Saturday group just decided we're going to dive into the book of Romans. So we'll be starting Romans on the Saturday group. Uh, next Sunday uh, we'll have our congregational lunch and meeting following worship. So you, uh, some of you have already uh, responded to me. Uh, you have on your communication card a place you can check if you haven't done so, because uh, we'll order sandwiches from Avani's uh, like we normally have done. And uh, so uh, if you haven't already RSVP'd, uh, mark your card, send me an email. Uh, do one of those. Don't just tell me at service because by, I might forget by the time I get home. I'm getting older. Uh, and and uh, uh, so we'll have that next week after church. Uh, we'll have lunch and then we'll have our, our meeting. Uh, and so... Um, uh, with that, we will have a prayer, and hopefully we'll uh, not have any more technical glitches as we go along. Oh, glorious Lord, we just thank you for your goodness, and while we sometimes find ourselves frustrated with technology, we do thank you for uh, what technology makes available. So uh, for those who are tuning in online, for those who will uh, watch later, we do thank you for the gift of being able to, to broaden our reach, and we just uh, we pray for your anointing on today's service. Uh, we pray just that you would uh, help us to work through any glitches that we may have, and we just pray that your name would be given all glory and honor and praise. So, Father, we come before you, and we just uh, we seek your face. We ask for understanding in your word, and we just pray that we would be uh, aware of your presence as we come in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to start from Psalm 48 this morning. The Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, rising splendidly, is the joy of the whole earth. 
Mount Zion on the slopes of the north is the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in its citadels. We come here today to praise our God, to lift his name up high. Would you stand as you're able and join me uh, in praise to the Lord the Almighty. in Psalm 48. God, within your temple, we contemplate your faithful love. Your name, God, like your praise, reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with justice. Mount Zion is glad. The towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And we celebrate that he is a wonderful, merciful Savior. Cheers. 
Today we're reading from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 13 through 41. I'm reading from the ESV. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now he sees, but how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, that I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they, they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. May the Lord's blessing be on the scripture and Pastor Dan's message. Testing. Test. There we go. Thank you, Don. Thank you. So, so we'll put that there just in case I need it, and that way I don't knock it off. All right. All right. Very good. Thank you. So uh, we ask God's blessing on uh, the passage, Dan's message, and the microphone, right? Because we want it to, we want it to work throughout the message. Uh, you know, uh, I don't remember uh, years ago, we uh, had gone through some different studies from uh, different people through Right Now Media and things, and, and one of the studies we did, I, I think it was David Platt, but I don't recall for sure, but I think it was David Platt, and in the course of that lesson and, and uh, one of the lessons in that series, he made a comment. He said, 20% of what I tell you is wrong. The problem is, I don't know which 20%. And I thought that was really good, right? Because, you know, the reality is none of us have it all figured out. It doesn't matter how much you study. It doesn't matter how much you learn. It doesn't matter uh, how much wisdom you have. It doesn't matter how many years you have. Uh, none of us have it all figured out. There's always something that we're missing, something that we can yet learn. Uh, and the question that sometimes confronts us or that really confronts us as disciples is, are we teachable? Are we correctable? Or are we unchangeable? You know, in Hebrews 5.12, it says that for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again. And when we think about maturity as a Christian, right? Maturity as a Christian isn't measured in years, is it? All of us know people who have been uh, uh, or would have said that they're a believer for years and years and years and years, and there's been no progress, no growth, uh, no better understanding, right? They're, they're still at the same place that they were uh, decades ago. Ma maturity as a Christian is not measured by years, but it is measured by growth in, in faith and the faith. And you might be thinking, well, what's the difference? Well, growing in our trust of the Lord as well as growing in our understanding of the faith we hold, right? Because we can talk about who our faith is in as well as what our faith teaches. I hope I don't step on any toes here, but the reality is, is we're not meant to live indefinitely on our Sunday school lessons from our youth. Now, if you think about that, how many people have never moved beyond the Sunday school lessons when they were a kid? But we are to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. And if we're going to grow in our, uh, in our knowledge, right, that means we have to be teachable and correctable and not unchangeable. You ever know somebody who just stuck their heels in the sand like, it doesn't matter what you tell me, it doesn't matter what you show me, I'm not changing my mind, it's made up, right? It's my way or the highway. 
Well, each of us, right, each of us have things that we, that we know. There's undisputed facts, right? So uh, it doesn't matter how you try, right? I, I know 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's an undisputed fact, right? I, I know that. I know that I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. I know that there are male and there are female. And incidentally, I can tell you the difference, right? There are undisputed facts. You know, I happen to believe in science, and that includes biology, right? There are undisputed facts that we know. And then there's this realm of what we think we know, right? We're, we're like, this is what I think, but I'm open to discussion, to, to talking about, right? Because there's areas of interpretation. So there's areas that we think we know. So for instance, you know, how does the sovereignty of God and the accountability of man, how do those two work together? Well, I can say, here's what I think. But let's have a conversation. You know, uh, as we think about, say, uh, since we're going to be doing Revelation, right? There are things we think we know, right? I, as we go into the book of Revelation, uh, many of us think we already know what it's going to be about. And hopefully as we go through the series, maybe we'll be like, yeah, this confirms or, hey, you know, I'm changing my opinion, right? But there are things that we think we know. And then there are topics that we know we don't know. You know, it's outside my area of expertise. It's above my pay grade. Never studied it, right? There, there are things that, you know, I just know that I don't know. Now, the problem is not so much what we know we don't know. That can be fixed through learning. More dangerous and, and more difficult is the large field of not knowing what we don't know. Because not knowing what we don't know can shift things from I know to, well, I thought I knew, to turns out, you know, I didn't really know at all. Uh, for years, uh, early in our marriage, uh, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that if Amanda would eat better and exercise, she would feel better. It just, it just happens to work well for the sermon, dear. So, so all right. I, and I know I'm going to be in trouble afterwards, right? But, but for years, early in our marriage, right, I might have said once or twice, maybe three or four times, right, you know, if you would just eat better and if you would just exercise, you would feel better. Well, it came to learn that what I knew and took as undisputed, right? All you need to do is eat better and exercise. Turns out that what I knew, I didn't know. What was that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was more in the realm of what I thought I knew because what I didn't know, I didn't know, which she let me know when the doctor said so. Yeah. Did you guys all follow that? That's a long, complicated, convoluted way of saying, I was wrong. Right? I was wrong. There were underlying factors that I did not know about. Now, if you consider the disciples in our text, right, the disciples, when they first come on the scene of the blind man, right, and we, we did verses 1 through 12 last week, uh, but when the disciples first came on the scene, they knew, or at least they thought they knew, that this man's suffering was the result of sin. Right? And they knew it must be his sin or the sin of his parents. Now, what they didn't know was that it had nothing to do with any specific sin by this man or his parents, but what did Jesus say? That the works of God might be displayed. Likewise, if you look at the certainty of the Pharisees in verse 16, you know, man's healed, uh, healed, it happened on the Sabbath, verse 16. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Uh, wrong verse, sorry. Some of the Pharisees said, 
this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You hear the certainty in their voice? This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Verse uh, 24. Uh, so the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. How about we go to verse 34? Uh, they answered him, You were born in utter sin. Right? That's when they didn't like what the healed man was saying. And they couldn't argue his logic. They couldn't argue his truth. They couldn't argue the reasoning that he's using, right? So they just fall back with, we know because you were born blind. So obviously, clearly, we know that you were born in utter sin. You know, uh, maybe one of the things the last few years have taught you is, you know, the experts can mistakenly err. Experts can mistake, and there are times that they are, that they honestly and genuinely, right, mistakenly err. Now, there's also the other side of that, right, because we know everyone makes honest mistakes. But the other side is, is sometimes the experts can also maliciously promote error for personal or political gain, right? So it's possible to mistakenly err. It's also possible to maliciously promote error. If there's gain, right? And sometimes, sometimes experts will elevate their opinions over where the evidence leads. And that's something we have to be careful of, right? So uh, credentials don't replace character. Credentials don't replace character. We need the character that has enough humility to recognize we need to be teachable. And we need to be correctable. Because nobody has it all figured out. And the question is, is are we willing to follow the evidence? Are we willing to look at things honestly and legitimately and to take it where it goes? Because, no, we don't know what we don't know. Are we willing to learn and be teachable and correctable along the way? So as we talk about stepping into the light, it begins with honestly, uh, uh, objectively evaluating the evidence for Jesus, right? We're going to kind of move through this passage and look at how the evidence unfolds because as we pointed out last week, we see not only the, the healing of the, the physically blind man, but we also see him coming into spiritual sight as well as we move through the text. So uh, I don't know, uh, any of you remember um, Joe Friday from Dragnet? Right? Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Right? Don't give me your opinions, don't give me your interpretations, don't give me your analysis, all I want is just the facts, no assumptions, okay? So we have a man... So this is a, you know, chat, verses 1 through 41. It's a lot of verses, right? And, and Roger, you had a, a large reading today. Aren't you glad we didn't have the verse 12 verses on there as well, right? So just the facts. We have a man that's blind, blind from birth. We have Jesus who claims to be the light of the world, right? Notice I'm just saying the facts here, right? So this Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. And he follows that by spitting on some mud, or spitting and making mud with his spit, anointing the blind man's eyes, right? Uh, and then telling him to go and wash, right? These are just the facts of the text. So the man goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. Now the neighbors, they're divided over whether or not uh, this is the man, right? Because this is not your everyday occurrence, to which the man says, I am the man. So they bring him to the Pharisees, and this is when we learned that it was the Sabbath that this healing took place. The Pharisees ask him what happens, and then they validate it with his parents before they re-interview him. 
Despite the miracle that just occurred, they accuse Jesus of being a sinner. Uh, the man who now sees claims Jesus is a prophet and that if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, right, this is part of his testimony, God listens to him. And he also points out that never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And the Pharisees don't like his reasoning, and so they say, I apologize. I'm just going through the facts here, and I just made an interpretive statement on motivation, right? Let me retract that. We'll just say the Pharisees respond, right? I'm not saying anything about motivations or intentions, just the facts, right? The Pharisees respond, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Now, this is going to be deep and profound, but are you ready for this? You know, the facts are the facts, however you deal with them, honestly or dishonestly, right? The fact that we have a man who is born blind that now sees, that's the facts. Now, how we deal with them, are we going to deal with them honestly or are we going to deal with them dishonestly? We can't change the facts, but we can refuse to be changed by them. And that's what we're going to see taking place in the text, right? We see one man who's changed by the facts. We see Pharisees who are divided over it. The question is, we can't change the facts, but can we be uh, changed by them? Uh, has anybody ever heard the phrase, uh, blind leap of faith? You know why that's a bad statement? Because it assumes that there is no facts, that there is no knowledge, that there is no reasoning, that there is no consideration, that there is no logic, right? It just assumes that you're taking this blind leap and you're trusting without any reason to trust. But the reality is faith is a reasonable step that is based on knowledge and it is based on reason and it is based on evaluating the facts that we know. doesn't mean that we know all the facts, right? But it is based on the facts that we know and we follow them wherever they lead. That's what happens in our text today. We have a man who is making a reasonable step based on what's occurred. And we have people who refused to acknowledge what's occurred to see where that might lead them. So another instance of this would be uh, in the world, right? So in the creation of the world, we, we all know that the world exists, right? And, you know, I think we all know that it's not flat, it's round, okay? I think we know that. Undisputed facts, okay? We're, gonna, we're not going to dive into conspiracy theories or anything like that. So how do we interpret the facts? So Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, the way the Psalms puts it is day-to-day -day pours forth speech, right? Because the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Now, we have the facts, right? We have the universe, we have the world, we have all these specific criteria that, that have to happen for life to exist. Now, the facts are the facts. What happens is how do we interpret them? Well, it all happened by random chance as we all evolved from goo that we have no idea where it came from in the first place. Only that the world had a beginning at some time and the universe had a beginning, but we have no idea how it begun. Or there's a divine design uh, designer because there's a design, right? Same facts, 
two different interpretations of the facts. Which one makes more sense? It's not the facts that are in question, it's how they get interpreted. And if we're going to objectively evaluate the evidence, then that also means that we have to be aware and beware of personal bias. Uh, Vernon Grounds wrote, and I quote, uh, Lord Kenneth Clark, internationally known for his television series, Civilization, lived and died without faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he admitted in his autobiography that while visiting a beautiful church, he had what he believed to be an overwhelming religious experience. He wrote, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I'd ever known before. But the flood of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he would have to change. His family might think he had lost his mind, and maybe that intense joy would prove to be an illusion. So he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. We must be aware and beware of personal bias that might cause us not to see. Now, this is kind of in that realm where I don't know what I don't know might come into play, right? Because as we think about the Word of God, the Word of God is not subject to error. My interpretation of it, however, is, right? And when I bring to it my bias, that bias has the power to bend my interpretation and to make me see things differently than what it actually supports. So as we pick up where we left off last week with verse 13, we're going to see how this bias kind of shapes how people are reasoning through everything. So verse 13 we see uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, there's nothing nefarious here, right? Uh, the Pharisees were their religious leaders. They're bringing the man in search of an explanation. A great thing has just taken place. This would be a natural thing to happen, right? So they bring him to the Pharisees. But at that point, that's when we get hit by it. The fact that for some overruled all other facts, and isn't it interesting that the fact that overrules all other facts is not the fact that a man born blind now sees. It's that it happened on the Sabbath. This is an example of putting the... Better be careful. I was going to say emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? <laughs> the problem for some is this happened on the Sabbath. Now... While they had been commanded in the law to observe the Sabbath, by this point in history, they've added all sorts of oral tradition regarding how that became deeply embedded in their practice. And ironically, the oral tradition that they added ensured, uh, keep, to ensure keeping the law in turn made them violate the law that they wanted to keep. Uh, so if you want to, you can check out Matthew 15, 1 through 9, where Jesus accuses them. You, you place your commandments of men above the commandments of God because they've misinterpreted the spirit behind the commandments. Now, pertinent for today, as we think about their Sabbath observance, right? They had come to a place where they believed on the Sabbath. Healing or medical care was limited to saving life, right? So you can't do anything to preserve life. You can't do anything to make somebody's life better if their life was in danger, you can do medical care to the extent that you save their life, and then the rest had to wait till tomorrow. So Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. There's strike one. Jesus made mud, required kneading. There's strike two. And in many of their estimations, to anoint a man's eyes would be a violation of the Sabbath. So there's strike three. 
So in their estimation, Jesus just struck out. That's where verse 16 picks up. Uh, verse 16, where it says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, in their estimation, nothing else mattered. He doesn't keep the Sabbath the way we think he should, so he's not from God. He is a sinner. But that was not all of them. The verse continues. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And so there was division among them. Now, what separated the some from the but others when the facts remained the same? It's the bias from which they started. Uh, Kostenegger writes, The division among the Pharisees follows the differing ways of reasoning observed by the schools of Shammai and Hillel. The former argued from foundational principles. Anyone who breaks the law is a sinner. The latter from the established facts of a case. Jesus performed a good work. So the psalm, are, uh, the psalm are starting from the thing, hey, he's breaking the law, or at least what we should say is our interpretation of it. And the latter are starting from the fact, wow, how do we explain that a man born blind now sees? The difference is the bias from which they started. As Whitaker points out, the Pharisees face a dilemma for Jesus' Sabbath-breaking suggests he is not of God, whereas his extraordinary power to heal suggests that he is of God. We have two convictions that they're having trouble to reconcile. So earlier in the text, the neighbors were split over the identity of the healed man. That's verses 8 and 9. Now we see that among the Pharisees, they're split over the identity of Jesus. And they have this conflict of convictions that they really can't reconcile. Well, in our estimation, he violated the Sabbath, so that would mean he's a sinner. But on the other hand, he's doing something that no sinner can do. Now, when you have a conflict of convictions, that should be the first clue that maybe we need to revisit some of the convictions. Because we don't have it all figured out. There's things that we know, there's things that we think we know, there's things that we know we don't know, and there's things that we don't know that we don't know. You know? Do you guys all follow that? Don't ask me to repeat it again. They know that God has told them to observe the Sabbath. Could it be that maybe they've taken their restrictions a little bit a touch too far? Now, unfortunately, their oral tradition has become more deeply embedded than the original law. And buried under their traditions, they've lost sight of the law that they were seeking to keep. So here's what we do know, right? We have a blind man who's healed by Jesus, and it took place on the Sabbath. Now, they're divided on what they think they know, right? We have one group saying, this man is not from God. And we have another group who's saying, but how can a sinner do such signs? And the difference is where they're starting from. Now, to give the sum of the equation an undeserved benefit of the doubt, it was true that false prophets could at times perform signs to lead astray. Right? So think back to the Exodus. Uh, when Moses first comes in, he throws his staff on the ground. What happens? Turns into a snake. The magicians of Egypt do what? Throw their staffs on the ground. It also turns into snakes. 
right? Now, we see uh, in the first uh, signs and then the plagues of Exodus, the, the magicians of the land duplicated what Moses did up to a point. And then we got to a point, and the magician said, uh, this is none other than the finger of God. Right? We see another example in the New Testament in Acts. Right? You read through the book of Acts, and you run into this guy by the name of Simon. Not Simon Peter, Simon the magician. Who's amazed, who, who's amazing the people, and then when he sees the power of the Holy Spirit, he's amazed by what he sees, and he says, that's real power. And that's in Acts chapter 8, if you want to go check out the account. Right? So, so to give them a little bit of a benefit of a doubt, you know, a prophet was not discerned as true or false solely by the presence or absence of signs, but also by the message and the result. So if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 through 5, Basically, you know, God says, you know, if there's one who does a sign, but he leads you away from to other gods, right? He says, this is a test of the Lord to whether you love me or not. He says, don't listen to him. So it's not just the presence of signs. It's also about the message and the result. But Jesus' entire ministry has not been about going after other gods, but giving glory to God. But the difficulty they're struggling with is, but he's not keeping the Sabbath. And since he's not keeping the Sabbath, he must be a false prophet who's turning hearts away from God by the reasoning of the some. But others, now pay attention to what the others said. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Not just a sign, but signs. Because this is not the first miracle that Jesus has performed. And they're evaluating and they're saying, you know what? Uh, we can't ignore this ministry that's been taking place. This man has been doing not just one, but many good works. And not only good works, but miraculous works. And all the while, he's been giving credit to God. So we have a division among the Pharisees. One group that's only focused on one detail. He did it on the Sabbath. Another group is saying, but look at all these things he's doing. Now, when you're at an impasse, what do you do? And there was division among them. So verse 17, and this is really kind of funny. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he was open your eyes. Let's ask the uneducated, right? So here you have all the experts. Well, let's ask the uneducated man who was healed. What do you say about him, right? And he says he is a prophet. You know, miracles were associated with Old Testament prophets, and more specifically, uh, as we pointed out last week, the healing of the blind was prophesied of the coming Messiah. And as Joe Merrill pointed out, uh, they did have the expectation that only the Messiah would be able to heal a man who was born blind, Right? So, so we do have this background in the Old Testament for the healing of blind connected with the Messiah. Now, at this point, the, the uh, healed man is not quite at that point, right? At this point, he's just saying he's a prophet, not necessarily the prophet. But he's saying he's a, a prophet. But the Pharisees can't accept the fact that perhaps they're wrong. So what do they do? Well, let's call in the parents who confirm that this is their son, who was born blind, but they refused to answer how he now sees. Verses 22 through 23 continue. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. 
For the Jews had already agreed. You want to talk about some bias, right? The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So he is of age, that means he's older than 13, right? We're really not told how old he is. He's older than 13. But note, says they had already agreed. If anyone confesses him as the Christ, he should be put out. Now, if your mind is made up before you start the investigation, then your bias is going to shape your investigation, isn't it? And it's going to shape how you interpret and what you see. If you begin with a false premise and you evaluate by false criteria, don't be surprised when you arrive at the wrong conclusion. And so their biases are preventing them from stepping into the light, which would require that they be willing to follow where the evidence leads. Because as you start to evaluate the evidence, it's going to do one of two things. One, it's going to confirm your bias, whether or not it's accurate, or it's going to challenge your bias. Right? It's going to either confirm it or it's going to challenge it. And yes, we all have biases. Right? The best we can do is be aware of it and be aware of it so that it doesn't blind us to follow the evidence. So the healed man follows the evidence and he steps into the light while the religious experts were unwilling to lay aside their bias and they remain in darkness. Uh, Paul uh, Tripp uh, wrote, uh, I remember taking my youngest son to one of the national art galleries in Washington, D.C. As we made our approach, I was so excited about what we were going to see. He was decidedly unexcited which I would understand if I was a young boy too. But I just knew that once inside, he would have his mind blown and he would thank me for what I had done for him that day. As it turned out, his mind wasn't blown. It wasn't even activated. <laughs> now that I can relate to as well. I saw things of such stunning beauty that brought me to the edge of tears. He yawned, moaned, and complained his way through gallery after gallery. With every new gallery, I was enthralled. But each time he walked into a new art space, he begged me to leave. He was surrounded by glory, but saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders, but was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything, but he saw nothing. Doesn't that sound like what happens in our text? The facts are the facts. They saw everything, but they saw nothing because they couldn't get past the fact that Jesus didn't do it the way they thought he should do it. No, at issue is Jesus claimed to be the light of the world to which we must either accept it or reject it and because if it's true, to reject him is to remain in spiritual darkness and to accept him is to step into the light. And there were some who had already made their mind up, right? It didn't matter how much evidence he gives. It didn't matter that a, a man was uh, healed that was born blind. It didn't matter that there was nothing uh, told of this since the beginning of the world. It doesn't matter what Jesus did. They don't like him because he's not playing by their rules. They were too embedded in their world to change. But there were others who wrestled with how a sinner can do such signs. Now, it's interesting as we move through the text, right? Because we have the reference to the Pharisees, which then turns to a reference to the Jews, uh, referring to those who were standing opposed to Jesus. Because at this point, really, we lose sight of 
those who say, how can a sinner do such things? Uh, could it be that there were some quiet believers who will emerge later, say like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, perhaps, right? The text really doesn't deal with that group as much as the ones who claim to see and, and are, are opposed. And then we have the parents, right? The parents who out of fear were best unwilling to voice the possibilities, right? Because we're not really told what the parents believe. What we are told is they're unwilling to say it because of fear for the Jews. So at best, they're unwilling to voice the possibilities, and at worst, they're unwilling to consider them. Uh, as John Hart comments, to be expelled from the synagogue would have resulted in serious social and economic consequences. And we can go into there were different levels of excommunication, and we don't know which one might be in view and so on and so forth, but, but there was cost. Right? And there will always be those who deny the truth because they perceive the cost of accepting it as too great. That's where we see the parents are at. Uh, Hillary uh, Holiday wrote, um, and this was from a former Maryland poet laureate, uh, Lucille Clifton, who wrote a poem in which she pictures herself as trying to keep her eyes closed, ignoring the truth. Maybe you've been in that place before where you just want to ignore the truth. But then she finishes the poem with a voice telling her, you might as well answer the door, my child, because the truth is furiously knocking. We can deny the truth for a time, but in time the truth will be not denied. As the scriptures say, one day every knee will bow. One day every eye will be opened. At some point everyone will see. But it's better to follow the evidence today and to step into the light than it is to be judged tomorrow by the evidence that you refuse to see. So at first, the healed man only knew him as a man named Jesus. When he was pushed as to what he thought about Jesus, he declared, well, he must be a prophet, verse 17. When he's challenged further, including seeking to coerce his opinion, verse 24, says, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now, that sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? But then the next part of it says, we know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Uh, now, what we need to understand about the phrase, give glory to God in this context, is it's an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament idiom, as John Hart points out. It uh, goes back to Joshua and the sin of Achan, who's been hiding his sin, right? And they say, give glory to God. Admit that you're wrong. It's basically an oath, Right? With God as your witness, tell, uh, admit that you're at fault and that you're wrong. No longer profess this man named Jesus, right? Because we know he's a sinner. So the implication is just tell us the truth. We know Jesus is a sinner. Agree with us. But he cannot deny what he knows. So it'll be a little lengthy. We'll read verses 25 through 33. Follow his logic. Um, it's here somewhere. He answered, I should get a Bible with bigger print probably, huh? <laughs> Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I just love his sarcasm at this point. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. Now, incidentally, they mean that as an insult, but we should take it as a compliment. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. 
But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, the healed man, he can't argue the fine nuances of theology, but he is wise enough to recognize that the religious experts are losing the argument based on truth. And when you're losing the argument based on truth, what do you resort to? Ridicule. Think about this. They don't argue logic. They don't argue truth. They don't argue the fine points that he's making. What they do is they result to ridicule, which is capped off in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. We're going to label you in order to ignore you. And in so doing, what they do, in fact, is condemn themselves because they're implicitly admitting to the fact that Jesus healed them. They're just not willing to follow the evidence where it leads. So at this point, Jesus finds them once more, verses 35 through 38 pick up. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, his faith was not a blind leap. It was a reasonable step considering the evidence at hand. He was born blind until this man named Jesus came along and did what no one else could do. He opened his eyes, which also led to spiritual sight. Does he understand all the implications? No. Does he know fully who Jesus is? No. Does he know fully what Jesus is about to do? No. Right? So he does, faith doesn't mean I have all the answers, but it does mean, hey, I have enough to make a reasonable step. Verses 39 through 41 continue. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, when Jesus says, uh, for judgment I came into this world, you might be thinking, well, how does that fit with, say, like John 3, 17, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. We need to understand that there are different ways to understand judgment based on different contexts. And as, as Vincent writes, uh, judgment here is not the act of judgment, but its result. His very presence in the world constitutes a separation, which is the primitive idea of judgment between those who believe on him and those who reject him. Right, So when Jesus says, I came into judgment here, it's basically, you know, Jesus' coming results in either salvation or judgment depending on how you respond. For to reject the light is to simultaneously choose to remain in the dark. And there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. So verse 32, as we close up, he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus just claimed to be the light of the world, which he then validates by opening the eyes of a man born blind and ultimately by his own resurrection from the dead. 
how have you or how are you responding to him? Because as we think about coming to faith, coming to faith doesn't mean you have it all figured out. But you've seen enough, you've experienced enough to place your faith in him and to worship him. And if we've come to that point, it should likewise mean that we've seen enough, we've experienced enough to know that we should be open to being taught and we should be open to being corrected as we choose to walk in his light and to stand up for his truth, whatever the cost may be. Amen. In your bulletin, you have a communication card, and we invite you to think about how God might be uh, speaking to your heart this morning, and we invite you to throw that in the offering baskets, uh, as well as your RSVP for the uh, congregational meeting. If, you, if, you, if, you haven't already, if you've already given me an RSVP, I already have you down. Uh, if you haven't, then I don't, okay? How's that for simple? Uh, as we uh, prepare ourselves for our call to communion and closing, uh, uh, sorry, call to communion and stewardship. <laughs> you know the pastor's gone too, too, too long when he's already talking about that. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world reveals uh, truth and he exposes error. And while Jesus came that whoever believes in him may have life, the result of his coming is likewise judgment for those who would uh, for, there, for there would be those who accept him and those who reject him. There will be those who come into the light and those who refuse to, to come into the light and to stay in the darkness. And if you think about uh, our destiny, our destiny is determined by how we respond to Jesus. Among the miraculous signs that Jesus did, uh, he also made two prophetic statements. And uh, I just thought, you know, as we think about bias and how we read things and how we study uh, it'd be good to kind of bring in just a little bit of what we did in Sunday school, right? Among the miraculous signs that Jesus did, he made two prophetic statements that should leave us with no doubt about his credibility and his identity. Uh, one, he predicted that the temple would be destroyed within a generation, and it was. And two, he said that he would be rejected, suffer, and die, and then rise again. And he did. As you come to this table, there may be many things that you have not figured out. There may be things that you think you know, know you don't know, and don't know that you don't know. But in looking at all the evidence and knowing your experience, may you know the one who is not only the light, but the one who is our life, the one who gave his life so that we might live. And may that life that you now live be lived for him, through your next steps as your life begins to give testimony to your faith and your worship as you put your life on display for what he's done for you. And so I want to remind you that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. O most glorious and loving Father, as we come to this table, we humbly recognize that we don't have it all figured out, that there are many things that we don't understand, many things that, uh, that we don't comprehend. But yet as we come to this table, we have recognized who Jesus is. And we just come that we might humbly learn from him, that we might receive the gift that he has made for us,
and that we would just yield ourselves to truly follow and to, to be a disciple, which by definition means a learner. May we ever be students of his, that we might grow in him and become mature in him, that we might be the body of Christ that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to come and receive the, the gift that has been made for you. And as you do so, to think about your response to him and how you're growing in him. It is not a blind leap of faith for me to tell you that Dan and I will be having a conversation later today. <laughs> but I can tell you with all certainty, he has grown in his understanding. He has been willing to change his mind on many things in that arena. <laughs> so I am thankful. I am thankful. And I just kid. I kid. But it is, it is so good. Um, I am not one of those people that you need to give me all of the facts and lay it all down. I'm not one of those that dives deep into it, but I appreciate 
those who are willing to dig into that, who are willing to find that for those that it is important, that it is important for them to understand all of how that goes together. So I am thankful that you walked through that. Thank you. We are going to close today with King of Kings because we are so appreciative of the gift that we have been given in his son who came, who revealed himself and for those early believers who trusted him. So would you please stand as you are able and we'll close with King of Kings.
Next week at our congregational meeting, uh, you'll have the opportunity to sign uh, our covenant of membership, if you choose, uh, which we kind of view as a commitment to discipleship. It's a way of declaring that you have not only stepped into his life, but that you desire to the best of your ability to walk by it through prayer and study, because you understand you don't have it all figured out, through worship and recognition of who he is and what he's done for you, through giving, serving, teaching, and loving as you recognize that in what he's done for you, you desire now to live for him. So may we go forth with the confession on our lips, Lord, I believe, and with the testimony of our lives that are given to his worship. Amen.